Hey, everybody. Welcome to Investing in Cannabis. I'm Brandon David. Thank you so much for joining us. Great episode on tap. We're back in New York City with David Feldman, the well-known cannabis lawyer, uh, finance lawyer. We get into a lot of great topics. He's recently started Skip Intro Advisors to help mainly the East Coast, but everywhere, get licenses, ramp up, and be a part of the next generation of cannabis. Uh, It's a great episode. We talk about New York and crowdfunding, which he was very instrumental in getting past. Uh, it's a great episode, guys. You're going to love it. I learned a ton. You're going to learn a ton. Tune in, listen up, get acquainted. Hey, if you could, uh, just write us a review. If you listen to the show all the time, if you get a lot of value out of it, just uh, please do us a favor. It really, really helps. Just go write a review. Thanks. David, thanks so much for having me, man. I'm in your office in Manhattan. Nice to be here. Welcome to the show. Love to have you and love to do things in real life again. It's really exciting to be in our office meeting with people. And You're telling me, doing stuff in person is just all the difference in the world. You know? Well, in New York, really is coming back. And we, we were just in Boston where there's still this fear and masks everywhere and so on. New York has adopted a, we're not going to require masks, but we are going to require vaccination mm-hmm. to do a lot of things. Right. And people are going back to offices. I went to theater last night for the first time. They do require masks, but you have to be vaccinated mm-hmm. to come to the theater. Yeah. So, which makes good sense, but we won't get too political <laughs> uh, just yet. Um, I have an opportunity to be here for a couple of weeks, and so I kind of have gotten into the cannabis scene here and learned what's coming next and got a lot of different opinions. Um, so I'm excited to have this conversation, particularly from a legal perspective. Um, But let's just start with an easy one. You started a new company not so long ago called Skip Intro Advisors, yeah? Tell us about that. Tell us what that is. Sure. I had the great uh, foresight to set up a new company right before pandemic (laughs) uh, at the beginning of 2020. That's fun. Which actually worked to our benefit. But the concept was, you know, I've been a longtime uh, corporate and securities lawyer, uh, helping entrepreneurial companies at all stages of development with finance, M&A, venture capital, taking them public written four books on finance and entrepreneurship as well. And, but I always you know, wanted to do more than just draft documents for people. And I, I often became a counselor and advisor to my clients anyway, helping them through some of their business challenges. Uh, I just wasn't paid for it. Mm-hmm. And so in cannabis in particular, we saw uh, a kind of hole in the market where there were a number of consulting firms out there, but none that were really solving all the problems that, that we are looking to solve. Mm-hmm. So we're focused on finance and M&A, branding and marketing, and technology. Mm-hmm. And we're, we're not aware of any consulting firm doing all of those things. We're doing some regulatory work as well, and of course, general strategic advice, and we have an incredible team of uh, 10 people who are all kind of either luminaries in cannabis or people with incredible backgrounds outside of the industry mm-hmm. who have dove in in the last few years uh, and really learned a lot. And as you know, in this industry, we work in kind of dog years, and if you've been in the industry a year, it's like six or seven years mm-hmm. anywhere else. Uh, and these folks have now been in it two years. And in a way, pandemic helped us because we spent 2020 really focusing on building our team, building our strategy, building our website, mm-hmm. uh, and taking on a few clients we didn't promote at all. But in 2021, we are out of the closet. We are uh, doing a lot of uh, outreach, social media, and so on, and letting people know that you know not only that, that we're all together, but that this is the brand in which we're, we're 
promoting ourselves. So that's a pretty wide range of services, right? Um, obviously the finance and legal stuff, you have a, a lot of background in. How do you add sort of the branding marketing component and the technology, where does that come from? Sure, so on the branding side, we have it's led by Carolyn Guerin, who uh, runs a company called CannaWise out on the West Coast. She's one of the top cannabis branding agencies. And so she's affiliated with us as well. So we, if we have any uh, branding issues, we bring them to her. But in addition, we have a guy named Javen Bunch. Javen came outside from the outside the industry, uh, but he built Tory Birch, and is an amazingly talented branding and marketing guy. Mm -hmm. And in the last two years, he's dove in to this industry, uh, doing a lot of work with people in Massachusetts and things like that. And he is a phenomenal advisor uh, and helper in that regard. On the technology side, uh, one of our co-founders is Siki Junta, who is a uh, technology rock star, uh, currently working for HCL Technologies, big global uh, software and advisory company. She, they call her the queen of cloud. She advises big companies on their transformation into uh, cloud services. And, but knows all things technology and has been involved for 20 plus years uh, in the industry. And again, dove in here two, two years ago and has learned a tremendous amount. She has looked at a lot of the software in the industry and realizes how lacking it is and how much opportunity there is to improve it. And then we brought on a woman named Pam Casal, who is, uh, has worked with Seeky for many years. And she's a great kind of cannabis technology marketing person uh, who can help people build platforms and do all the things they need. For example, we're working with a, a telehealth company that needs to deal with HIPAA issues and all this other stuff, and she does that. And Jean Sullivan also, who uh, works with us on the finance and M&A side, has a strong tech background, so mm -hmm. we bring her in for that as well. So you're actually developing technology within the group or advising on what softwares to select and how to integrate them, or exactly what's the offering look like? Currently, we're focusing on, focusing on advising companies that are developing technologies or having challenges in their technological uh, needs. Mm -hmm. uh, and, but, but we are also looking at whether it might be interesting to kind of develop new technologies uh, and build a team to do that. But at the moment, we're, we're fine just uh, advising companies as they're going through their challenges. Got it. And what kind of companies are working with you and what kind of companies should be contacting you? Is there a certain stage that's right? Or tell me a little bit about the profile there. Well, it's it's hard to work with real early stage companies because they generally don't have the ability to pay mm -hmm. for services like ours. Mm -hmm. We generally shy away from, you know, stock-based compensation as the main part of what we're taking, mm -hmm. with a few exceptions, for example, in psychedelics where there's just a frenzy of activity. Um, but, you know, companies that are kind of at an inflection point trying to decide path A, path B, path C, path D, uh, and no matter how smart you may be in, in understanding your own business, you can never be fully objective in really looking at it. Mm -hmm. And I've learned that in my own business, yep. where, where I go and get outside objective advisors who kind of slap me in the face and say, well, that's stupid, don't do that. You're often uh, too close to it, right? Founders are in the weeds, they you, can't, pun intended. As, uh, I always say, you know, I've watched so many smart people make the same mistakes that other smart people made before them. Uh -huh. And, you know, the, having outside objective advisors who've worked with hundreds of entrepreneurs as I have uh, can be very helpful as you try to figure out where to go with these decisions. And those decisions can be in terms of branding and marketing, in terms of technology, uh, but most commonly we're doing work on strategy and kind of 
uh, finance slash M&A. So when you say that early stage companies don't have the money, which is very common, is there like a certain retainer that you start with or how, how does it work? How do you engage with someone initially? Well, typical lawyer answer, it depends. <laughs> uh, and it depends on what services we're going to be provided. Mm -hmm. uh, for example, in M&A, uh, the SEC rules allow us to work for a commission for a percentage of the deal. So we usually take a modest monthly retainer and then a percentage of the deal going forward. We also are working with companies that are looking to just raise money, do financings. Mm -hmm. SEC rules do not allow us to take a commission in that situation if we're not a broker-dealer, which we're not. So we can't take a percentage of money raised, but we can get a monthly retainer from those clients. And for them, we also do something we call financing readiness, where we sit them down and say, first, what is the valuation of your company that you really should use in raising this money? Number two, uh, who are the right investors to approach, which isn't necessarily the most likely investors. Sure. People who are easy to find may not be the people you want as your partners in investing. And so we walk them through and understand their culture and their personalities and say, who do you really want as your partners? Do you want a venture capitalist who's going to kind of put a lot of collars and restrictions on you, but be very helpful as you develop your business and do multiple rounds? Or would you rather have a bunch of high net worth individuals who are going to be mostly passive, mm -hmm. you know, but may not do another round and can't really help your business, but will give you the freedom and, and uh, have, you know, more control. control. <laughs> uh, and so and, different personalities are okay with different approaches. Mm -hmm. Once we figured that out, then we develop kind of a model term sheet, and then we will help them go out to potential investors and even make those introductions. We just, like I said, can't get uh, a commission on it. But we can continue to get sure. uh, a retainer as well as, uh, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, piece of the company as well. Yep. How do you balance this with your legal practice? I mean, you've been a lawyer for a lot of years, right? And done a lot of wonderful things outside of cannabis. How do you balance your time? What are you working more on these days? Well, I, I always say, look, how does a lawyer handle more than one client? It's really the same thing. Mm -hmm. It's just more clients. Yep. And, in fact, it's, it's better because we're doing more work for the same clients. There's so much synergy between the consulting and legal work. For example, uh, in May, we represented a three dispensary group called Keystone Counter Remedies in their sale to Terrasen, big multi-state operator, mm -hmm. at a $70 million enterprise value. We helped them juggle three term sheets from three MSOs. We took the best one. Uh, Terrasen had a right of first refusal because they already owned part of the company. So once we finished the signed LOI with the one they liked, we brought it over to Terrasen. They accepted it. And once that LOI was accepted, I switched my hat to lawyer, and I handled the legal work. Mm -hmm. uh, obviously through the separate firm and so on, uh, but same person. And so you don't need to gear up the lawyer and everything right. else, uh, and that works really well. And so uh, I divide my time the same way I did among multiple clients. Mm -hmm. And I think one thing my clients will always uh, say about the work I do is I'm always accessible and responsive to their needs. Mm -hmm. And so many lawyers I know uh, and service providers of any kind. You can be really good at what you do, but if you don't get back to people, you're basically worthless. Mm -hmm. And a lot of folks don't fully understand that, mm. uh, and they lose business because of it. That's very interesting. I mean, it's so simple. It's simple, but it's too. not that easy necessarily to do when you're getting hundreds of emails in a day. Sure. You know, how do you get through it? And the answer is one thing at a time. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you prioritize and you make decisions about who really needs your attention. Uh, but I have an absolute... Um, four-hour callback rule when a client calls on the phone, 
Okay. You'll, we'll call back within four business hours. Yep. I try to be as quick on emails. You can't always be because you sometimes need to do a kind of substantive response in an email. Yep. But we work hard to do it that quickly as well. Mm -hmm. And I think that's critical. You know, I've been a client of law firms, uh, whether it was my divorce or whatever. And I get, you know, there are times I'm in the middle of the day and, you know, okay, I have half an hour. I'm going to call my lawyer now. But they don't answer because yep. they're busy. Yep. And I understand they're not always available when I want them. Uh, but it would be nice if they were, <laughs> or at least get back to me soon. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I, I get it. It's it's the other side of that. Uh, I mean, same day is great. Four hours is great. Well, that's that's the goal, and yeah. that's that's what we seek to achieve at all times. And and is that more possible because you have a smaller practice and you've sort of broken this out? Is that sort of what you're going for? Is like that sort of white glove touch here? It's sure. I mean, but I've operated that way when I was in big firms or small firms. Got I was. It. Most recently at the at Dwayne Morris, which was an uh, 800 lawyer firm. Yeah. I'm, I'm the same wherever I am. Uh, and my attitude is if I'm too busy, then I'll hire people. Mm -hmm. And we're already bringing one associate into the new law firm that we're going to be creating as of October 1st. And, um, you know, if they get busy, we'll hire more people. Mm -hmm. And I'd rather be able to delegate that ability to respond so that somebody gets back to them. Yep. Uh, no matter what. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Um, from a legal perspective, I mean, you've met with so many founders, so many relatively early startups. Is there like one or two things that they always do wrong, sort of red flags that you've seen in this industry? Well, my third book was on entrepreneurship, and I call it the seven things most likely to go wrong mm -hmm. in building a business and how to prevent and treat them as they occur. Um, I think some of the biggest reasons businesses fail, of course, the most obvious one people talk about is undercapitalization. You didn't raise enough money or put enough money in, and you couldn't get enough traction from mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. uh, another big reason businesses fail, bad partner choices. Uh, and people jump in to bed with people that they just met or they thought they knew, and it turns out they did not know them well. Mm. Uh, and then problems arise. So these are the types of things I look at. And there are also people who lose their focus because some new idea comes along and they jump to that because that's the shiny object, forgetting about the thing that's been doing pretty well and needing to keep it going. Mm -hmm. uh, and then also burnout is a big problem with entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. And I talk a lot about how to do, you know, we used to call it work-life balance. I've started calling it work-less-work balance. Mm -hmm because there's no more no work. Mm -hmm. It's with you at all times. Yeah, always. And so there's an advantage because you can be anywhere and you don't, you're, not, you're not chained to your office desk anymore the way we used to be. But it also means you're never out of touch. And it was interesting when I went to the show last night, it was the first time in a long time that there was an hour and a half where I could not look at my phone. Mm. And it was kind of nice. Yeah. Uh, and, and I try to uh, challenge my entrepreneur clients. I say, try this for a week where you only look at emails once an hour. Okay, yeah, it's hard to do. It's very hard to do, and I can't do it myself, right. because if you're in a service business, it's hard. Mm -hmm. But if you're a CEO or an entrepreneur, 99% of things can wait at least 59 minutes. Absolutely. And you can then do other things instead of sitting dealing with your never-ending email. Ah, I know founders that um, they only do email within a certain couple hours a day. Right, and so they just sit down and do it all at once, which is interesting tactic. That doesn't work for me, but interesting. Um, it's one of the reasons I like to fly and do some work on the plane too, even if they have Wi-Fi. Like 
just turning off your phone and not having your phone for a little while is a, well, is a nice thing. I'm old enough to remember before we had Wi-Fi on planes <laughs> when everyone was like, oh, my God, I have six hours free where nobody can bother me. Right. And that's not true anymore. But I'm, I'm, I'm actually happier, you know, when I go to California and have 100 emails waiting for me when I land, I'd rather be able to work on the way and then, you know, be all caught up when mm -hmm. I get there. Mm -hmm. uh, and at least the phone doesn't ring when yeah. you're on the plane. That's the one thing. That you can avoid at least. So I see you have this little yellow pad cheat sheet here. Anything on? Is there some deals on there you want to talk about? Or? Well, I guess we, you know, I was looking at kind of what's going on in the deal world yeah. of cannabis right now, yeah. and what we're seeing is, first of all, tremendous consolidation mm -hmm. uh, happening in the industry because there is this perception that federal legalization is not far away. Mm -hmm. I think that perception is wrong, but the perception is there. And as a result, how you, wrong? <laughs> I wish I could answer that and give you the answer. My joke always is since 2013, when I've been involved in this industry, I've been telling people federal legalization is five years or less away. <laughs> so I'll still say that okay. it's five years or less away. But I said that in 2013 mm -hmm. and it didn't happen. I'm also the guy who said in 2019 that New York was going to pass uh, adult use. Mm -hmm. And of course, I was wrong about that. Mm -hmm. So don't use me as the prognosticator <laughs> at all. But, you know, the Schumer bill was a major step forward. Uh, and it's we're closer than we've ever been mm -hmm. and I always say you know these usually don't happen till sort of the fourth try but you can't do the fourth try until you do the first try mm -hmm. so they're doing the first try and just dropping that bill brought tremendous attention to this possibility mm -hmm. and it woke a lot of people up yep. to say oh gee this may really happen now uh, even though Biden isn't really for it He's not really against it. So if it nah, came to his desk. He's just a non, yeah. Well, it would be better if he were an advocate. Yeah, sure. Helping push for it. Mm -hmm. He's not going to be that. Yep. Uh, and they've made that clear that he hasn't changed his view mm -hmm. that we should decriminalize and expunge convictions, but not legalize. Mm -hmm. uh, but like I said, I think if the bill came to him, he would sign it. Um, but as of now, uh, we're, the likelihood that 10 Republican senators would support this is very low. Mm -hmm. And the likelihood that they would and the filibuster for it is even lower, mm -hmm. in my opinion. So that's why I don't think this bill. Plus, there's there's some pushback on this bill. You know, the taxes are very high. There's a number of other issues, um, but because of that, there is this M and A frenzy, and plus there the valuations of the businesses. Although they're they've been dropping a little bit lately, there was a run up, you know, earlier this year and the end of last year, that allowed some of these public companies to raise a lot of money so that they could make more acquisitions. And you've got all these companies kind of with 10 million, 20 million, 30 million in revenues that are saying, I'm gonna get lost if federal legalization happens mm -hmm. and big alcohol, big tobacco, and big pharma start getting into the business by acquiring the biggest multi-state operators and other players in the industry. And if you're the one left behind, you're in trouble. It's like when, when the big box hardware stores came in 25 years ago, like Lowe's, they destroyed all these long-standing, decades-old local hardware stores that people used to go to and, and, and enjoy because they have so much more selection, lower prices, and all of that. And that's what's going to happen with these companies. They're going to bring in marketing muscle and economies of scale and destroy a lot of these small local players, not only the you know, licensed growers and sellers, but extraction companies, all the ancillary businesses, and so on, uh, media companies, you know, all of them. I'm in the middle of uh, selling a media property in our space that is being bought by a mainstream, well-known uh, media company mm -hmm. that I, when I learned about it, I'm like, really? Mm -hmm. They want to get into this now? Mm -hmm. Wow. 
you know, and when I, if I told you the name, you'd be like, oh my God. Yep. And hopefully we're going to get to announce that fairly soon. Um, but they not only want to buy this property, they want to promote it, they want to do conferences and do all this stuff. I'm like, so mainstream is coming in. Mm -hmm. So that's another part of the M&A trend. And then we're seeing, you know, a lot of financings. In particular, some of these tech companies are getting uh, some money. We saw that uh, there's a breathalyzer company uh, that just raised $20 million as practically a startup. Uh, Jane Technologies, which has uh, e-commerce, is mm -hmm. just raised $100 million. Mm -hmm. um, but then MedMen just raised $100 million, mm -hmm. which is talk about a, a turnaround story. Mm -hmm. You know, that's pretty cool. Uh, and then on the acquisition side, you know, Akerna buying a software company for $17 million. Jushi uh, bought a property in Massachusetts is, is a hot mm -hmm. uh, acquisition area. They paid $91 million. Uh, Cresco did a $90 million uh, acquisition in Massachusetts as well. Mm -hmm. TerraSend with Gage, $545 million all-stock deal of that Michigan company, which is kind of interesting. Mm -hmm. uh, Air just bought into Pennsylvania for $80 million. There's a lot of exciting um, deals. And this is just in the last few months. Yeah, no, as you listen, there's an incredible amount of M&A happening in the space. Cushco right merging I, with GreenLane. I think one of the questions, if you're a retail investor, is like a lot of the value has been created through financing, as I would say, right? M&A or raising or whatever. Is that sustainable as an operator? What does that mean for the fundamentals and the long-term outlook of some of these companies? The problem is the, the, the valuations of these cannabis companies are so volatile and so unpredictable. And one piece of news can affect all of them so easily mm -hmm. either way yeah. uh, that to make, to, to make this a big part of your investment portfolio is like rolling the dice yeah. at a casino. Mm -hmm. Uh, and to try to pick which are the good companies is equally hard. And there's only a few very active stock pickers, as you know, mm -hmm. that people follow. And they're somewhat helpful. I have, I have only one stock. I'm not going to tell you what it is. <laughs> uh, but it is a listed stock, not an over-the-counter stock. Uh -huh. and I've, so an ancillary stock. Sometimes. It's an ancillary, of yeah. course, because yeah. plant-touching companies can't be yeah. on the exchanges. And I'm happy to talk about why that's so terrible and mm -hmm. should change and... There's no reason that they should keep and saying no to them. Huge but lift in the uplisting potential there, right? I mean, if you own some of these huge. OTC, yeah. Well, and and all these U.S. companies fled to Canada mm -hmm. to go public because they thought they could get better trading up there and raise money more easily up there uh, because it's legal there. Mm -hmm. And that was true for a little while around 2017 and 18. It's not really true anymore. Mm -hmm. There are enough, even though there's not a lot, there are enough investment banks in the U.S that are actively raising money for U.S. public companies, even those that are over the counter, mm -hmm. are doing pipes and doing, you know, regular financings. Mm -hmm. But they're struggling in terms of, you know, market support and getting trading volume going when they're over the counter. And even if they're at the CSE, you know, because the Toronto Stock Exchange will not list U.S. plant-touching companies. Mm -hmm. So you're not getting to the top exchange even in Canada. <laughs> uh, so the CSE is kind of like yeah. U.S. over the counter. Mm -hmm. And there are so many problems with moving to Canada if you're operating here. You know, just one little example. We represented, when I was at Twain Morris, one of the biggest multi-state operators who had moved to Canada. And they wanted to do a stock option plan. Simple thing. Stock option for employees. But, okay, first the Canadian, you know, uh, employment lawyers had to look at it. Then the Canadian securities lawyers had to look at it. Then they sent it to us. And the U.S. employment lawyers had to look at it. Then I looked at it from a securities perspective, and it didn't have any of the stuff that I need 
that I normally see in a stock option plan for a U.S. company. It, it, so many projects become double the work mm. just because you reincorporate it in Canada. Yeah. So I do try to make sure there's a good reason to go up there now. And it's still this trend is happening. Um, well, but, there's been a big influx in private investment in the U.S. too, right? So there's not as much of a need to go do that as there was maybe in 2017 or so. Right. And we are working with a number of companies who uh, there's one, one of our existing clients in Skip Intro came to me because they read my book on Regulation A+, which is a streamlined, simplified way to do an IPO. And they didn't even know question. I did cannabis when they called me and they said, we want to do an, an IPO where a equipment company in the space. And by the time we were done talking to them, we made them realize they shouldn't go public, mm -hmm. that instead they should probably sell mm -hmm. because of all the reasons we were just talking about, mm -hmm. plus all the challenges of going public mm -hmm. and having to be, they, they could get listed because they're not plant touching, mm -hmm. uh, but going and finding the underwriter and, and doing all this, you know, and they, they're, they're not, they're not small, but they're not big enough. They're not mm -hmm. over a hundred million. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, the challenges of going public are significant, mm -hmm. uh, but if it's done right and done well, it can be a better exit alternative mm -hmm. than most M&A deals. Yeah, um, this quote-unquote like the mini IPO, right? This Reg A plus, yep. and I know you're instrumental in it. And I want to talk a little bit about that and, and like crowdfunding more generally, right? Sure. Um, I mean, for the first time in, in ever, individuals that are not accredited can put money into crowdfunding. Yes. Um, that's very exciting from an investment standpoint. What do you think the pros and cons are there if you're a company looking to do that? Well, it's reggae was designed for smaller companies. Um, you can only raise up to 75 million. It was 50. They just raised it. Uh, and then there's the what we call regulation crowdfunding, which is not reggae. That's where a private company can raise up to now 5 million from accredited or non-accredited people. Is that? No, that's Reg CF. Got it. Reg D is only accredited generally Got it. with a few exceptions. But uh, for non-accredited, you can do Reg CF up to 5 million mm -hmm. or Reg A plus. And you know, both of them offer the opportunity to get in on this you know, early stage or going public uh, where normally in a traditional IPO, you've got to be a special customer of a brokerage firm mm -hmm. to get in on an IPO. The, the risks, of course, are that we, make sh we have to make sure that there's proper disclosure, that investors understand what they're getting into. Uh, and, and a lot of these Reg A deals are not done with underwriting firms that normally help ensure that those protections are there. And you hope that at least the law firms that are involved are making sure of that. Uh, but that's not always the case. It's some of these small law firms that are just churning, you know, uh, offering circulars. And the SEC has taken a kind of hands-off approach because they want Reg A to succeed. And there have been hundreds and hundreds of companies that have used it in the five years that it's been around, which is great. And almost all of them, with the exception of like 10, were over-the-counter stocks, which is, again, great if you can do it and make it work. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's a lot of uh, opportunity for smaller companies to benefit from being publicly held. And after 2000, small IPOs uh, went away for little companies. And that's mm -hmm. when we turned to reverse mergers. Mm -hmm. And then reverse mergers became problematic because of a bunch of frauds in China companies. And that's when we looked at Reg A as the solution of saying, look, there's very limited ways of small companies to get public, but there are lots of reasons that some of these companies could benefit from being public. 
And while uh, some feel that no small company or early stage company should be public, I disagree. I say, ask two questions. Can you benefit from being publicly held? And can you bear the cost of doing so? And if the answer to both of those is yes, it's something you should seriously consider. Mm -hmm. Yeah, seriously consider uh, for sure. Um, there's got to be some nightmare stories involved with this, though, right, of, of companies that tried and didn't work, and then the signaling to other investors is poor. Have you run across that? I, I, sure. Yeah. And, and we, we dealt with this when reverse mergers were big. Mm -hmm. And they'd say, you know, 9 out of 10 reverse mergers fail. Mm -hmm. And I'd say, yeah, but so do 9 out of 10 startups. Mm -hmm. And so most of the reverse mergers are companies that are still fairly early stage, mm -hmm. or at least earlier stage than traditional IPO companies. Therefore, the likelihood that they will fail, even if they stayed private, was pretty high. Sure. And so what you think, or what we believe, was that by going public, they maybe stayed around a bit longer because they maybe were able to raise one additional round of financing before things kind of fell south. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, but there are nightmare stories about reverse mergers. There are nightmare stories about reggae, but there are nightmare stories about giant IPOs sure. and great big public companies that, that turned out to be frauds. Uh, so. I think one of the interesting differences is the way that investors discover those companies, right? Unlike a big IPO where, you know, maybe it's done through the great, you know, there's public announcements in it about it and everything. Generally, these require some kind of platform, right? Or they're online based and, and the marketing is sort of a lot different. Is that something that you advise on and, and how, are, how are investors finding these individuals? Well, yes. And there are these crowdfunding platforms yeah. now. Uh, the whole point of Reg CF and Reg A Plus is to say, look, the internet exists. And why shouldn't we be allowed to use the internet to promote uh, an offering of securities? Mm -hmm. And previously, it was very restricted and, and not really allowed. And in Reg A, you can test the waters with any investor, which means that during your IPO, you can do YouTube videos, Twitter, you know, uh, Instagram, whatever, to promote your IPO. Mm -hmm. And you know, we did the first one to go on to the New York Stock Exchange, a company called Myomo, mm -hmm. uh, that it was a medical device company, not, didn't really have a social media following or a big customer base, but by engaging a marketing firm that helped them really get the word out with, with kind of heart-wrenching videos of a veteran being able to hug his daughter and things like that, uh, about a third of the money they raised was through that uh, crowdfunding effort. And then there were these crowdfund sites where people can sign up and get to look at deals and so on. And a number of them are broker-dealers. Some of them are not. You have to be careful the ones that are not. Doesn't mean they're all bad, but, you know, some of them are. And with Reg CF, when you're raising up to $5 million, you have to do it through a broker-dealer or registered financial portal. With Reg A+, you don't necessarily have to do that mm. or use these other uh, um, portals. But you have to be careful who you work with. And there are some good ones, and there are some, you know, a little more questionable ones. Very interesting. Um, what would you say the quality of those deals are like? I think that's one of the pushbacks is that, like, once it gets onto crowdfunding, those aren't the best deals. They've sort of gone through the investor pool already. What do you say to that? Uh, some yes, some no. Yeah. I, I think, you know, when you're talking about dozens and dozens of deals getting done, some will be good and some won't be. And mm -hmm. since they are more early stage-ish companies, uh, you are going to see some that will not succeed. And you will see some that are a little sketchy in their disclosure and so on. And it's important to have people advising you that can help you figure out kind of which is which. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, 
let's shift to New York a little bit. Sure. It's an exciting time to be here. Um, what do you think of the legislation that's come out and what's proposed? Pros, cons? What, what has New York learned from other states, I suppose? I guess my biggest disappointment, and we'll start with that, okay. in the New York bill is the ban on vertical integration. Mm. I get that they want to keep big cannabis from controlling everything, but I don't think that was a good way to do it. I don't think you should mandate it, which is what they did in the medical program in, the, in New York, which was also, I think, a mistake, to say you have to be an expert on farming but also retail. Mm didn't make sense to me. Mm -hmm. But to say you can't do both also makes no sense to mm -hmm. me. Uh, you could restrict the number that people own and so on without uh, banning vertical integration. But putting that aside, overall, I thought uh, the final bill was a uh, successful compromise on a lot of the issues, including social equity, how the board is going to run, where the money is going to go, and w a lot will depend on how the regulations are written with the new team that's now been put in place. Mm -hmm. And for example, we don't know if there will be a limit on how many licenses will be issued. Mm -hmm. Critical question yeah. in terms of how they're gonna be granted, what the value of these licenses will be, and so on. If it's more like California, where it's basically unlimited, that's gonna be one approach. If it's more like Pennsylvania, where it's very limited, or New York before, mm -hmm. uh, that will be different. What we're hearing is it's gonna be somewhere in between where there will be hundreds of licenses, not 10, but not 500 either. Mm -hmm. But we just don't know until uh, we see what the regulations look like. But I think Cuomo had no choice but to give in on a number of key points that he had been intransigent on previously because he was politically weakened be, uh, due to his scandal. Uh, and that's how it got done, mm. was him, you know, he wanted to control everything. He wanted to control who was on the board. He wanted to control where the money went. And the legislature kept pushing back on that, and finally he gave in, and they compromised and said, all right, um, X percent of the money is going to social equity or bad areas or this or that, and the Cannabis Control Board, which oversees everything, is going to be three people from the governor and two from the legislature, and the head of the uh, Office of Cannabis Management, which will actually run things, will be nominated by the governor but approved by the Senate which also was a, a fair compromise. Mm -hmm. So undoubtedly there'll be pretty high taxes, uh, well, at the, least initially. New York also did pretty well, I think, with their approach to taxes. And Cuomo was trying before pandemic to coordinate with neighboring states so that we don't have like people crossing the border because taxes are lower. Uh, so it's around a 13% tax, mm -hmm. which I think is tolerable compared to what California did, which was way too high. Yep. Uh, and, you know, and the first in the country THC-based tax that will be kicked in as well at the grower and processor level, mm -hmm. which is going to be interesting to watch. And the Schumer bill has that as well. The biggest problem with the Schumer bill is very high taxes, which they want they, they go up to 25% in taxes uh, in the Schumer bill on top of the state tax. Mm -hmm. So that's we're hoping that will change if the Schumer bill moves forward. So I think overall the New York tax is okay. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not the greatest. Yeah. But, you know, sales tax in New York is 8%. Mm -hmm. So it's not so much higher. Yep, yep. Um, yeah, I mean, there's a few things that California in particular and other states didn't do that great. And I think they really underestimated the black market and sort of the stickiness of that. Um, New York has a giant black market, right? And, and a lot of these regulations will dictate whether people continue to go to it or not. Um, 
What do you see in, in terms of that? Do New Yorkers want to buy legal weed? Are they excited about the next thing? Or is it kind of like, whatever, weed's been here for a long time? Weed's been here for a long time. Everybody in this city knows somebody who can deliver weed to your apartment. Yep. Um, and generally of reliable quality. Um, that said, if they approach it the way California has been trying to, which is to say, okay, if you've been in the illegal market, but you want to come out of the shadows and get a license, we won't ask what you were doing before. It's not officially amnesty, but it allows you to get a license. But you have to promise you're done with this illegal stuff. And by the way, if you don't come out of the shadows and seek a license, we are coming after you. Yeah. And California did that a bit, but not, in my view, enough. Yeah. And New York is going to have to do that strongly. New York's going to have to say, we are going to shut this stuff down if it's illegal after a period of time where we give you a chance to go seek a license. Yeah, it's about enforcement and whether there's the political will to do that. And I think a lot of that gets wrapped up in the sort of equity program idea, right, in the war on drugs and who's been affected. How do you think New York did in that way, in the equity program? I think it was, a, again, a fair compromise. Um, you'll never know. The fact that both sides are a little unhappy with the result means I think it went well. Uh, everyone always wants, you know, it to be better. And I think it's a, a tough balancing act between wanting to develop a robust and successful uh, industry that will create a lot of jobs and bring a lot of taxes, but also help solve uh, the problems that the war on drugs created. But you can't, it can't all be about that. And so there needs to be a way for social equity applicants to, be, um, to get benefits without necessarily um, bringing unqualified people to the table mm -hmm. or having what happened in California happen, which is non-equity applicants, you know, hiring somebody who is an equity applicant mm -hmm. and they're not actually going to do anything yep. except put their name on it. I have announced and will continue to say I will not be involved in anyone who's doing that, mm -hmm. period. Mm -hmm. And I don't care what you tell me is really what the person's going to do. If I don't perceive that they're a true, real, active partner, then I don't want to be involved. Mm -hmm. And I think New York is going to see through that and make sure that the social equity applicants really are real. Uh, and, that's, and, and I am a big supporter of the micro-business idea and, and micro-loans and so on. You know, Jesse Jackson used to say, don't give us a handout, give us a hand up. Mm -hmm. And I really believe in that. And I think it's better to provide help in building their business than to say, you get a preference over somebody else who's more qualified. Mm -hmm. It's a tough issue. It, it's certainly not simple. Um, yeah, we'll, I guess we'll see how it comes together. Uh, in the last few minutes, I'd like to shift gears and just ask about you, kind of the person. Um, you have such a wonderful career prior to cannabis. Why do you want to be in this industry? Why, why do this? Well, I love uh, being on the cutting edge. And I did it with reverse mergers where it was a uh, unacceptable kind of shady area of the law where I said, you know what, this is a good technique that's been abused and I'm going to help people understand that. And I did that with books and other things uh, and faced a lot of challenges with people saying, why are you getting involved in this? And I helped bring it into legitimacy and transparency which was fun and exciting. Mm -hmm. And with cannabis, what's, what's cool is we're kind of writing the rules as we go. And we get to have a say in how that's happening, which I think is fun. And in securities law, you know, there's a lot that is vague and uncertain. Uh, 
in, in it. And we often have to advise clients, look, this isn't clear, but this is what we think, based on our experience and knowledge, the regulators would do mm -hmm. in this situation. And we're doing the same in cannabis. But it was really, it's more about doing good while doing well. And, you know, before this, I was doing a lot in the biotech space. And there's a lot in cannabis that's a lot like that. And mm -hmm. in fact, the psychedelic uh, business is all about biotech. Mm -hmm. That's really all it is. Yep. And with biotech, I felt like, oh, I'm going to help a company go public, but it's a company that may cure cancer. That's good. Mm -hmm. I want to, you know, maybe be able to help the world. And in cannabis, I feel like it's helping people get the medicine they need. It's helping, of course, with the social equity goals. And it's also kind of about freedom. I'm a bit of a libertarian when it comes to these kinds of things, and I feel you should be able to do with your own body what you want as long as it doesn't hurt somebody else. Mm -hmm. And that's a big part of that for me. Uh, but, of course, there's always the friends of mine from high school who I went to dinner with recently who said, is anyone surprised that David Feldman is now a cannabis lawyer given <laughs> how we spent our high school years? And, you know, it, but it's really not about that. I mean, I'd actually stopped using it for many years. And, um, you know, it was more about the excitement of, uh, you know, helping the world, really. Mm -hmm. um, what is your personal relationship with cannabis today? Uh, I, I uh, take a couple of puffs before bed. Mm -hmm. uh, it is now fully legal in New York to say that. Yeah. You are allowed to possess up to three ounces uh, fully legally, not even decrim. Mm -hmm. You're allowed to smoke anywhere where cigarette smoking is permitted, which means we now can have consumption-related events mm -hmm. where you can bring your own stuff and use it legally, mm -hmm. which is amazing. I've been uh, taking advantage of that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I quit drinking uh, three, four years ago because I just didn't need to mm -hmm. anymore. Uh, and I'm healthier and feel better and sleep great. Uh, and so for me, it is um, but flowers you know, a godsend. Still. I vape. Not, you vape? I vape. Okay. Generally. Sometimes I do edibles. Got it. I, I will do flower sometimes, like when I travel and go to Vegas or something. Yeah. Um, I'm not opposed to it. I yeah. just, you know, prefer, uh, because in the vape, I can sit in my bed and, and sure. have a few puffs and yeah, go yeah, to sleep. Yeah, yeah, you know. yeah. Understood and interesting. Um, you're so knowledgeable. What do, you, what do you read? What do you pay attention to every day? How do you learn? I'm a bit of a news and political junkie, so I read a lot of that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, but I love kind of legal thrillers and, and things like that. But if you mean what do I read about cannabis, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I get all the daily news feeds, uh, and, and it, it sometimes can overwhelm you a bit. Uh, keeping keeping up on everything that's going on, but it's essential. And I was used to it as a securities lawyer because there was constantly changing regulatory environment and so on. Uh, and so you need to be looking at it every single day. Uh, I don't, I'd rather not list uh, the ones, but it's all the ones you would imagine, uh, both in terms of general news of the industry, but also in particular focused on the finance side, which is where, of course, you know my interest is. Mm -hmm. uh, so I'm I'm. I'm up on what's happening as much as I can be. I do subscribe to a few uh, services that, that give you a bit more in-depth. One, for example, Law360 uh, is a great resource mm -hmm. uh, on many things going on in cannabis on the legal side that aren't covered uh, in other places. Mm -hmm. You've been in this for quite some time. 2013, you started working on cannabis stuff. That's is right. that accurate yeah. or, or previous to that? Yep. Um, how do you feel about where we are today in New York or federally? Like, what does it mean to you? It amazes me that we've come this far this me quickly. Too. Other yeah. people, I think, are frustrated with the pace. You know, I remember a time when, when we were in school growing up, they showed us 
you know, uh, Reefer Madness as like a real thing. Mm. Like this will happen to you. These you're gonna, you know, jump off buildings and 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 rape people and do all these terrible things because you're smoking weed. Mm -hmm. And we were supposed to believe that, and it didn't stop us as teenagers from from using the product. But sure. but that was the message they were trying to send, and there was no way this was ever going to be legal. Mm -hmm. And you know, I give talks about how it became illegal and how it was all about politics, racism, and business interests, and nothing to do with dangers of the plant. And now that that is changing, in the end, what, what it shows you is the power of public opinion in the United States to influence policy. We now have 70% of Americans routinely polled say they want to legalize marijuana, and that includes a majority of Republicans in just about every poll. And so once I think we hit 25 states with adult use legal, then I can't imagine that we wouldn't move to federal legalization at that point. I don't know if it can happen before then, mm -hmm. unless something like the Supreme Court were to come in, which it might. And my law firm that I'm in the process of transitioning from, Hiller, led the uh, challenge to the cons constitutionality of the illegality of cannabis. Mm -hmm. And they weren't quite ready to deal with it, but as you know, uh, Justice Thomas issued a dissent in a recent uh, case on taxes yeah. where he said, you know, it's possible that uh, it no longer makes sense to say that cannabis illegality is constitutional mm -hmm. because of the way the federal government has dealt with cannabis. Like, they, ha they have a patent on cannabis. They license it. They allow research on it. Wait a minute. This is supposed to be a dangerous drug that's as dangerous as heroin and LSD, Schedule 1. Why would you allow research and, and let people use marijuana? You wouldn't do it for heroin. Mm -hmm. uh, and so th there's illogic in the way the government has uh, applied mm -hmm. uh, its use of marijuana. Absolutely. Well, I think that's a good place to wrap up as any. How can our audience help you? Well, we're, uh, you can give us a call if, you, if you're uh, a business in the industry that is uh, reaching an inflection point where they are trying to make some tough decisions about where to take uh, their business to the next step. We, of course, you know, happy to discuss uh, legal uh, ad advice as well. When you're looking at a license in New York or New Jersey or really anywhere, we can, uh, you know, I always say, think of me as kind of your, your gatekeeper for things, whether it's legal or, or business consulting, that if there's something we can't handle, we, we know how to find the right person. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, you mentioned you're involved with the INCBA. Uh, I'm on their advisory board. And, you know, I work with a lot of my kind of fellow cannabis lawyers to help each other. And if I, you know, if I have a complex issue in Oklahoma, I know who to call for that and that sort of thing. So, Good stuff. Well, so nice to meet you. Thank you for Same. being on and having me in your office. And yeah, Thanks so much great. for having me. Appreciate it.